Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. Previously on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. There's an interesting story behind the discovery of one of the most significant documents kept in the Vatican secret archives made in a place associated with the name of the longest reigning pope after Peter. Pius IX was the first pope to create a personal archive, separate from that of the Secretariat of State. Following the death of the pope, this archive was transferred to the Vatican secret archives and situated right here where we are standing. This was a closed, sealed-off area to which only the Pope had the keys. In 1926, the prefect, Monsignor Angelo Marcati, received the key from the Pope and came here to research some documents at his request. While he was moving this high-backed chair, he heard suspicious noises coming from its backrest and realized it contained a secret compartment. He opened it and made a truly surprising discovery. You're listening to episode 147 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the secrets in the Vatican's secret archives. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. For centuries, the Vatican has maintained a trove of documents known as the Vatican's secret archives. Rumor surrounds them, and countless people wonder what they contain. Some are suspicious and think the Vatican is hiding shameful secrets it never once revealed. Others think they contain sensationalistic things like proof that Jesus existed or proof that aliens exist. So what are the Vatican's secret archives? How secret are they? And what do they contain? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what were we hearing in that pre-open for this show? I, I think I know, but let's explain for the listeners. And then what was discovered in the secret compartment in the chair in the Vatican secret archives? We were hearing audio from a documentary on the secret archives that was produced by Centro Televiso Vaticano or Vatican Television. And here's what they found back in 1926. Inside the chair was a large document complete with 85 seals. Reading it, Monsignor Macati realized that it was the letter sent by the English lords to Clement VII, urging the Pope to annul the marriage of Henry VIII to Catherine of Aragon. In the summer of 1530, the king's marriage trial was blocked in Rome. He needed to put pressure on the Pope and so decided to call a number of lords and high-ranking courtiers, many of them ecclesiastics, to court. He ordered those who were not able to come personally to send their signet rings instead those who responded, under great pressure from Henry VIII, who knew how to exact obedience, put their seals to this letter. But the king still wasn't satisfied. He wanted those who were absent to seal the document as well. So he sent his officials all over England to their homes until they had done what he wanted. By July the 13th, 1530, the document was ready to be sent. Among those who had signed and sealed it were two archbishops, four bishops, and 22 abbots of the greatest abbeys in the kingdom. Clement VII must have been quite taken aback when he saw this document. 
The vast majority of the British hierarchy had signed this supplicating and threatening letter, which asked the Pope to decide in favour of the King. It is no coincidence that this letter has been called the most impressive document ever produced in Tudor England. And it is extremely impressive, with 85 wax seals set in metal frames hanging off the bottom of the document. It's also impressive in that it represents so much of the British hierarchy, including the church's hierarchy, asking the Pope to annul Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And it's impressive in that it bears directly on a pivotal historical event. If the Pope had seen his way clear to grant Henry the annulment, he would have been free to marry another woman who would have theoretically been able to give him the heir that he so much desired. In that case, he likely never would have set up the Church of England. England, Scotland, Wales, and all of Ireland would have remained Catholic. The age of mutual persecution between Catholics and Protestants in England itself would, wouldn't have happened. Major military conflicts wouldn't have taken place. Denominations like Anglicanism, Methodism, Presbyterianism, and the Baptist movements wouldn't exist, certainly not in their present form. And Catholicism would be the default faith in the English-speaking world. Imagine the impact that this event had on world history. But the document also illustrates something else. It illustrates the chaotic history of the Vatican secret archives. For, as we'll hear, the archives themselves have been damaged over the years. In the 1800s, Napoleon carted many of them off to France, and the Vatican never got some of them back. It may be that an important document like this one was hidden in a secret compartment in a chair to prevent Napoleon's forces from discovering it and stealing it. And the document illustrates how, because of the turbulent history of the Vatican secret archives, they haven't always known what they had in their possession. So the secret archives are this place of mystery, and a lot of people have questions and suspicions about them. So what kind of things do people suspect are in the archives? To give you an example, here are 10 things that the website listverse.com suggests might be there. All right. Number 10. Religious artifacts like the True Cross, the Ark of the Covenant, and Noah's Ark. That one takes up a lot of shelf space. <laughs> number nine. The Bones of St. Peter. Uh, number eight. Historical documents that prove or disprove that Jesus existed. Uh, number seven. The Chronovisor, a device that lets you view events in the past by some kind of electronic time travel. Ooh, I want one of those. <laughs> it's bigger on the inside. <laughs> Number six. The true third secret of Fatima, not the one that was publicly revealed by St. John Paul II and the future Benedict XVI. Uh, Number five. The devil himself, or at least a manifestation of Satan. Mm. Number four. A magical book from the Middle Ages known as the Grand Grimoire. Number three. A painting of Jesus made in the first century. Number two. Evidence that intelligent aliens exist. And the number one thing that might be in the Vatican secret archives? Nothing at all, or at least nothing comparing to the sensationalistic items on this list. <laughs> I have to give listverse.com credit for noting the last of these is the most likely alternative that the Vatican secret archives don't contain any of these things. However, what they do contain and why is something we'll be examining. So how will we proceed in this episode? The Vatican secret archives aren't as secret as people often think. As a result, we won't be using our traditional structure of a background segment followed by analysis mode with the faith and reason perspectives. Instead, we'll simply tell you about the archives and their secrets as we go. Though, be sure to stick around to the end because there's a bit of a twist coming. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. How did the secret archives get started? Popes have been using documents ever since the first century. For example, we have the two letters of St. Peter that are part of the New Testament. These letters are much, much longer than normal ancient letters, which were extremely short by modern standards. And that's a sign that St. Peter viewed his letters as literary productions, not just notes he dashed off. When ancient literary authors sent letters, they normally kept copies of them. So that's probably what St. Peter did. As a result, the popes have probably had personal archives of documents ever since the very first one. 
But at that time, the church wasn't yet based at the Vatican, at least not in terms of having its headquarters there. Vatican Hill was not one of the famous seven hills of Rome. It's it's across the Tiber River from the famous seven. But there were people there in the first century. The emperor Caligula used the site for chariot practices and Nero, the emperor who martyred St. Peter around AD 65 or 66, built a famous circus there, a Roman circus being a site for chariot races, horse races, and gladiator fights. So Nero used circuses as places to martyr Christians after he framed them for the Great Fire of Rome that started in July of AD 64. Is it possible that St. Peter was martyred on the circus on Vatican Hill? Uh, It's quite possible. Peter was then buried in a cemetery that was located there, and his remains were discovered by archaeologists in the mid-20th century. Because Vatican Hill was the site of St. Peter's burial, it became the location of the most important church in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica, and today it's the center of the Vatican city-state. It thus came to be used as a key administrative center for the popes and a place where they'd keep their archives. This wasn't always the case, though. Originally, the Pope's archives seemed to have been taken from one place to another based on the Pope's movements. That almost certainly would have been the case in St. Peter's Day, and it continued to be the case for some time afterwards. As the Christian population of Rome grew, church records came to be stored in multiple places around the city, and that's still the case. Every parish and every Vatican office has its own set of records. Over time, the popes began building up quite a library, and in 1475, Pope Sixtus IV established what's now the Vatican Library, which contains books on theology, philosophy, and art, among other subjects. And it was meant to be a public library. It was open to the public. So how is the Vatican Library different from the Vatican's secret archives? The books in the Vatican Library weren't the church's administrative records, which the general public, you know, wouldn't be interested in and wouldn't normally be given access to since they were private. The latter records were stored in different places around the city, but in approximately 1611, around the same time that the King James Bible was published, Pope Paul V ordered that church records be centralized in one place. That led to the creation of the Vatican Secret Archives, which is called an archive rather than a library because it's primarily for documents and records rather than books. At the time, it had a different name. At first, it was simply called the New Archive because it was new. Later, it came to be called the Apostolic Archive because it belonged to the Apostolic See of Peter. And about 1646, it came to be called the Secret Archive. So did secret mean back then what it does today? Not really. The Latin word in question is secretus, and it doesn't have exactly the same meaning as the English word secret. It's important to remember that words don't keep the same meaning over time. If they did, the word nice, as in that's a nice dress, would mean foolish because it comes from the Latin word necius, which means ignorant or not knowing. Even the English words connected with secret have changed their meaning over time. For example, the word secretary comes from the word secret. A secretary is a secretary. But a secretary isn't some kind of sinister secret agent, at least not normally. (laughs) Instead, a secretary is more like a personal assistant or a private assistant. And that fits more with the original meaning of secretus in Latin. If you check the Oxford Latin Dictionary, you'll find that the word means things like separate, independent, special, private, and confidential. It didn't mean not to be revealed, forbidden, or deliberately hidden. So the Vatican Secret Archive wasn't meant to be a body of deliberately hidden, forbidden, never-to-be-revealed stuff. It was the collection of the Pope's private records that were separate from those in the public Vatican Library. Here's how the web page of the archives explains its name using the neuter form of the Latin adjective secretum. The title, Vatican Secret Archives, sometimes known as the Vatican Apostolic Secret Archives, was commonly used stressing the particular nature of this collection of documents, which consists of the concentration in one place of several archives produced by as many curial offices. The Latin adjective secretum, from secernere, to separate, to distinguish, to reserve, 
in fact, described the archive founded by Paul V as separate from the others and reserved for the use of the pontiff and for officials appointed by him. So not deliberately hidden, but simply the archive of documents kept separate from the other archives for the use of the Pope and his officials. If it wasn't secret in the modern sense, were people given access to it historically? Yeah, access to the archives was given to various scholars over the course of time. In fact, access to it was so significant that in 1702, more than 300 years ago, the famous German philosopher Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz, better known as just Leibniz, uh, who had used materials from the archive, wrote that it could be considered the central archive of Europe. So it was significantly helping people across the continent. Access increased in 1879, when Pope Leo XIII granted access to the archives to the German historian Ludwig von Pastor for his 16-volume History of the Papacy, which we'll have a link to. And four years later, in 1883, Pope Leo gave access to the archives to scholars in general. Do you have to be a Catholic scholar to get access? No. In fact, they don't even ask what your religion is, so your faith can be anything or nothing. They have an online application form to apply for a research pass, and the subject of religion never comes up. In fact, the Secret Archives webpage makes a point of saying that it, quote, can be accessed by scholars of all nationalities and all faiths, close quote. Instead of your faith, they want to know your name, your contact information, including your email address, because they send the reply by email. They let up to 60 scholars have access to the study rooms at one time, so 60 people a day. And these scholars come from about 60 nations on average each year. So there's like 1,200 scholars annually that come to the archives. They want to know what university you graduated from, what your degree was in, and what your current position or role is. They want to know when you'd like to access this, the archive study rooms, and you can apply for up to three months of access at a time. They want to know what your research topic is and what the date range it covers is, as well as which collections you want access to so they can pull the materials for you. And obviously, you need to be knowledgeable about how to handle archival materials since you're going to be using them. You know, they don't want you getting Cheeto stains all over these centuries old documents. <laughs> That's right. So do you have to be a super high power scholar to get access like, you know, some world renowned historian? No, in terms of your personal qualifications, they just want you to have a four-year degree from an accredited university or a licentiate degree if you're a clergyman, and that doesn't have to be a Catholic clergyman. Also, they want a letter of presentation to prove that you're a bona fide researcher rather than some crank. This letter needs to be written on letterhead from an accredited research institute, or it at least needs to come from a person qualified in history, which could just be an associate professor of history somewhere, not even a full professor, or the director of an institute of historical research who might not even have a doctorate. But it's pretty flexible. Basically, college graduates who have a letter of recommendation from a historian saying they've got a serious research project. And despite the COVID pandemic, the archives are still open. Scholars can still go to them, though at the moment you have to follow special rules because of COVID. So we'll be covering specific things that are in the secret archives, but what do they contain in more general terms? The archives contain millions of papers and parchments that range over the last 1,200 years for the most part, from the 12th to the 20th centuries. If the shelves they sit on were placed next to each other, they'd stretch for 53 miles, so 53 miles of shelving, making them equivalent in length to the Panama Canal. If you put them up on bookcases that are six shelves tall, the bookcases would stretch for almost nine miles. Much of this is stored underground. A lot of it is stored in an underground vault known as the Bunker, which is underneath the Cortile della Pina, or the Court of the Pinecone, which is part of the Vatican Museums. They call it that because the courtyard has an enormous 13-foot-tall bronze sculpture of a pinecone that dates from the first century. And I've been there. I remember being in the Court of the Pinecone when I visited the Vatican Museums a few years ago, only... I didn't realize I was standing over the bunker of the secret archives. In any event, the fact that the archives are largely stored underground is why you need to book time in the study rooms so they can find the documents, or at least you need to book in advance, so they can find the documents you want and bring them up to you. 
Are there things in the archives that you can't see that they won't let you see? Yeah, there are. They want to protect the confidentiality of people who are still alive, so they normally don't let you access the most recent material. There's a span of time known as the closed period that includes documentation that is not yet available to researchers. The reigning pope decides when to open this closed period and to place the documents relating to the entire papacy of one of his predecessors at the disposal of scholars. While closed to researchers, this documentation is open to the archivists, who dedicate themselves daily to arranging and reorganizing this material in anticipation of a papal decision to open them for consultation. When it comes to cardinals, they'll let you have access to records relating to the personal affairs of cardinals down to 1922, at least currently, but not afterwards. So they basically have a hundred year waiting period to protect the confidentiality of cardinals and other people mentioned in the cardinals records who might still be alive. When it comes to popes, they normally open the records 75 years after the close of a pope's reign. Obviously, the Pope himself is normally dead at the time his reign ends, but other people he interacted with may still be alive, which is the reason for the 75-year period. If you take the present year, 2021, and subtract 75, you get back to 1946, and the Pope whose reign ended right before that was Pius IX, who died in 1939, just before the outbreak of World War II. So his records were the ones that had been opened most recently under the 75-year rule. And do they ever make exceptions to the waiting periods? Yes. In fact, even though the 75 years haven't passed, the records of Pope Pius XII are now open. Pius XII died in 1958, so ordinarily we wouldn't expect his records to be opened until 2033. But there's been controversy about his role in World War II. The truth is that Pius XII, whose birth name was Eugenio Pacelli, really hated the Nazis. He even did long-distance exorcisms on Hitler, as we'll discuss in a future episode. And he ran a secret network to protect Jews from Nazis. But nevertheless, some individuals tried to paint him as sympathetic to Hitler or unconcerned about Jewish lives, both of which are totally untrue. Consequently, the Vatican started making exceptions and opening parts of his archives in the last few decades, starting during the pontificate of John Paul II. And last year, Pope Francis announced the opening of all of the records from Pius XII's pontificate, which, as we said, lasted until 1958. So, as of March 12, 2020, all of the papal archives down to 1958 are accessible to researchers, including the entire reign of Pius XII. Another exception to the 75-year rule was made by Pope Paul VI for the documents pertaining to the Second Vatican Council, which met between 1962 and 1965. Shortly after the close of the council, he had these opened for researchers. And in 2018, Pope Francis ordered the documents pertaining to former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick opened as part of the investigation into him. So they do make exceptions to the 75-year rule. And who's in charge of all of this? The Pope is the legal owner of the archives, and ownership transfers from one Pope to another as they succeed each other. However, underneath the Pope, the secret archives have an archivist who the Pope appoints and who is typically a cardinal. In 2018, Pope Francis appointed the Portuguese churchman Jose Tolentino de Mendoza, who, or de Mendoza, not sure how to say it. <laughs> Portuguese. <laughs> um, Portuguese, yeah, yeah. I haven't st has studied Portuguese phonology yet. And uh, Pope Francis made him a cardinal in 2019. There also is an official known as the prefect of the secret archives. And since 1997, that's been an Italian churchman named Sergio Pagano, who is presently a bishop. And there are other lesser officials and employees of the archives. So if some of the documents come from the 12th century or even earlier, then obviously they're really old. So what steps do they take to preserve them? The employees of the secret archives are specialists in library science, so they're familiar with and employ special techniques to keep the documents from deteriorating. Which specific techniques are employed depends on the nature of the document, how old it is, what it's made of, what kind of shape it's in, and the historical significance it has. 
Here's how the Secret Archives webpage describes some of their document conservation efforts. The Conservation, Restoration, and Binding Laboratory was created in 1953 and upgraded in 1982, and its task is to preserve the documentary heritage of the Archivio Apostolico Vaticano from harmful chemical and physical agents and organisms. Hence, it controls and assesses the areas housing the archive fawns, the environmental and atmospheric conditions, the presence of harmful organisms, air quality and lighting, and it also selects appropriate fittings and protective cases. Furthermore, the laboratory restores and binds the documentary heritage to preserve it for the future, using methods and materials adopted by the most prestigious Italian and international institutes. The customized acid-free cardboard cases utilized to preserve the single items in the archives are made using a Casamake KM503A plotter in a specialized department of the Conservation, Restoration, and Binding Laboratory. To date, about 52,000 customized acid-free cardboard cases have been produced. Acid is a real problem with ancient documents. Between A.D. 400 and A.D. 1800, the standard ink used in Europe was iron gall ink, which includes iron salts and tannic acid. Over time, acid can damage the parchment or paper that it's written on. So the Vatican Secret Archives have a special process to deacidify the documents. The Conservation, Restoration, and Binding Laboratory is dedicated to preserving documents from chemically deteriorating agents using specific deacidification procedures that involve immersing the paper in a calcium saline or magnesium solution with an alcohol or water-based solvent that slows the corrosive process in the paper, often caused by metal-based inks. After treatment, the documents are placed on special frames to dry. Basically, they soak the documents to get rid of as much acid as they can and then dry them on frames, stretching them out at the same time if possible. They also have a way of flattening parchment documents, parchment being animal skin. They have a way of flattening parchment documents that have become warped over time. Depending on the state of preservation, restorers apply a humidification process that gives the parchment the necessary elasticity to face a flattening procedure that's done using controlled suction and specific appliances. In some cases, when the condition of the parchment allows it, the stretching operation involves keeping the subject under slight tension. In order to consolidate more fragile paper supports, restorers apply thin sheets of vegetable fiber that still allow the text to be read. So for really fragile documents, they put pages between transparent sheets made of vegetable fiber. So they're getting reinforcement from both the front and the back, but you can still read the text. Manuscripts are sometimes attacked by parchment or paper-eating insects that leave deep tunnels through the pages. These items receive a special anoxic treatment. The volume is inserted into a container which uses a particular mechanism to extract the oxygen and replace it with nitrogen, which asphyxiates the insects. In the documentary, you can really see the holes and tunnels that the insects, like worms and beetles, have made through the manuscripts. And I love the procedure they use to deal with them. Basically, they put them in a tank, suck the oxygen out, and suffocate the little buggers with pure nitrogen, <laughs> leaving a bug-free manuscript. Historically, the way you'd show that a document was authentic was by attaching your seal to it, like we sign documents today with our signature. Back then, they'd put a seal on it. And so down through the ages, popes and other document authors have applied their seals to the ones in the archives. A seal is a special tool that is personal to you, so it has your own design on it, and you'd use it to authenticate a document, such as by pressing it into some metal or wax that you poured on part of the document, or at least metal in a container, which you then attached to the document. Later, seals were also pressed on documents using ink. In Greek, the word for seal is sphragis, so the study of seals is known in English as sphragistics. The Secret Archives works to preserve and restore the seals from the documents, and so they have a special lab just to do that. 
The Seal Restoration and Conservation Laboratory was opened in 1980, and its primary objective is to preserve the invaluable collection of gold seals housed in the Archivio Apostolico Vaticano. The laboratory has honed its techniques over the years, and today it focuses on the preservation and enhancement of the considerable sphragistic collection of the archives. This collection can boast hundreds of thousands of seals in wax and sealing wax, paper and papered seals, golden and leaden bulla. The laboratory adopts targeted, customized, state-of-the-art techniques to restore the seals, restricting consolidating interventions to a minimum, and so far over 5,000 pendant or applied seals have been restored. The laboratory studies how to create systems to enhance preservation and care of the sphragistic collection and also schedules seal conditioning interventions. So they're not only trying to preserve the documents, but the authenticating seals as well. Of course, they can't remove all the effects of time, though. And even with new preservation and restoration techniques being invented, they'll still age. And there can be accidents, fires, earthquakes, wars, other disasters. Are they working to make sure the documents won't ever be lost? Yes. Currently, the Secret Archives is pursuing a digital document acquisition program where they're scanning documents with digital cameras and making high quality TIFFs, compressed images and PDF ebooks. They've been scanning the oldest and most valuable documents first, and they've done about 7 million digital images so far, which they have stored on a 180 terabyte storage system. This is only, though, a small fraction of the archives, but it'll grow over the years as they scan more documents. In 2017, they partnered with an Italian university to start doing optical character recognition on the documents that they'd scanned so that you could search the text electronically. And this was really hard. If you're dealing with really fancy, cramped medieval handwriting, you know, it, it's hard to get optical character recognition. It's there were people back then were trying to cram as much writing as possible onto a page because parchment was expensive and the handwriting would change from one historical period to another and from one scribe to another, even in the same period. You know, it's not like they were using standardized printed fonts, so you could just set your optical character reader to Times New Roman and get everything. So the modern folks developed special machine learning algorithms to figure out the medieval handwriting of all the different individual scribes, and they're currently reporting 96% accuracy with the character recognition, even with this very challenging form of writing. Maybe we can call it Times Old Roman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Vetus Times Romano. Yeah, that's right. yeah. <laughs> so what about putting the documents online after they're scanned so they can be available to scholars all over the world without having to physically visit the archives? They haven't done that just yet. At present, the digital documents are available on the Secret Archives intranet. But I'm sure that many or perhaps even all of them will eventually be made available on the worldwide Internet as well. Scholars also can request photographic copies of various documents and get multimedia CDs and DVD ROMs. The key thing, though, is that once the documents are scanned, they can easily be copied so we don't have to worry about them being lost to history due to fire, war or accident as long as they're stored in multiple locations, including locations outside of Rome. Maybe we should create an archive on the moon to safeguard all these things. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> that's a possibility. We could have several archives around the solar system. Elon Musk, help us. Anyway, before we get to the rest of our discussion, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Eric H., Father Jacob M., Barbara J., Kristen K., and Wendy B., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And now's a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor to support all our shows, including this one, which makes your gift go even further. And... We're more than halfway to our goal of $2,000 in new monthly pledges. So once you help us close the gap, if you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now's the time. 
Visit sqpn.com slash give today. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. So, Jimmy, to continue our discussion, have documents ever been lost to things like war? Absolutely. As we mentioned at the top of the show, the French statesman and later emperor Napoleon Bonaparte had a sort of love-hate relationship with the Catholic Church. We'll talk about Napoleon in the future, but for now, let's just say... It was complicated. (laughs) In 1796, Napoleon's forces invaded Italy and took control of Rome, where they demanded that Pope Pius VI relinquish his temporal authority, which meant losing the papal states. Pius VI refused to do so, and so they took him prisoner, and he died in custody. Then Napoleon tried to patch things up with his successor, Pius VII. But the relationship soured, and Pius VII excommunicated the emperor. Pius VII then ended up being taken prisoner, too, and he remained in custody for six years. Eventually, Pius VII was released, and Napoleon fell from power. Did Pius VII try to get back at Napoleon afterward? Actually, he turned the other cheek and urged lenience for the fallen emperor. And before his death in 1821, Napoleon was reconciled with the church. During all this, when Napoleon was in control of Italy, he was demanding tribute from the Italians in the form of artwork, statues, and manuscripts. In 1809, he ordered that the entire Vatican secret archives be crated up and transferred to Paris, where Napoleon wanted to build a central archive for Europe. After his fall from power, the French government was willing to return the archives, but they didn't provide enough funding to get them safely back to Rome, so the Vatican had to put up some of the money. Still, it wasn't enough, and the resulting transportation system back to Rome was insecure. As a result, it's estimated that between a quarter and a third of the archives were lost and never made it back to Rome. Some documents were stolen or misplaced or ended up for sale in bookshops. Others were lost forever. Needless to say, this caused chaos, and it's one of the reasons why the archives haven't always been sure what they had in their possession. Let's talk about some of the documents that are presently in the archives. What are some of the most sensational documents, the ones that the public would be most interested in? One such set of documents that they have is the complete trial records of the Galileo Affair. This is the so-called original codex of the Galileo Galilei trial. Actually, it is a composite volume, a collection of various files of different periods that regard the scientist from Pisa and the procedures he faced at the Holy Office, or Inquisition, between 1616, when the Dominicans in Florence first accused him. So the very first weak investigation against him, and then the real trial from 1632 to 1633, which ended with Galileo recanting. This volume has an interesting history of travel. In 1810, when Rome was occupied by the troops of Napoleon, it was taken from the archives of the Holy Office and sent to the emperor in person because he wanted to see it. Napoleon held these papers in his hands and understanding their importance, in the interests of France and against Rome, so to speak. He gave them to his court librarian. But the well-known historical events ensued, including the overthrow of the emperor, Napoleon's fall from power in 1814, and the succession of the Bourbon king, Louis XVIII. This volume only returned to the Vatican in 1834. It was placed in one of the cupboards in this room and has been preserved here ever since. What are the contents of this volume? It contains the original acts from 1616 to 1633 and afterwards, 
concerning the life and trial of Galileo Galilei before the Roman Inquisition. Right here, in front of us, on these pages, are the declarations of Galileo, the transcripts of his interrogation by the inquisitors in which he defends himself against the accusations of heresy and for sustaining various theories contrary to the scriptures in his dialogue. He also defends himself against the accusations regarding his obedience to the famous Bellamine precept of 1616. In short, we have the whole court case that concluded with Galileo recanting on his knees, lighted candle in his left hand, as prescribed in the Church of the Minerva in 1633. Those records have been translated into English, and I have a copy of them. We'll have a link to where you can get them, too. And yes, we will be talking about Galileo and geocentrism in a future episode. Incidentally, I've been to the church in Rome that he mentioned, Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, or St. Mary over Minerva, though I didn't realize at the time that it was where Galileo's recantation took place. They also have the trial records of another supposed martyr for science, Giordano Bruno, though it really wasn't his scientific views, but his theological views that they found most alarming. I mean, he was he was a heretic seven ways from Sunday. Giordano <laughs> Bruno's records were among those that they lost until they were rediscovered in the archives in 1940. Another set of famous documents have to do with Martin Luther and the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. We move on to this other interesting and outstanding document, an original register of Pope Leo X that contains two so-called papal bulls, two historically important apostolic letters regarding another very famous personality. Although there is no way to compare the two, Galileo and Marty Luther, this register contains the threat of excommunication against Luther expressed in the bull Exorge Domine of July 1520. In it, the Pope formally condemns Luther's 41 theses affixed to the castle of Wittenberg as heretical and gives him 60 days to change his mind and to apologize for challenging Rome and the Pope or face excommunication. Obviously, the bull registered here was sent in the original, complete with papal seal to Martin Luther in person. In response, and in contempt of Rome and the Pope, he is recorded as saying, I desire neither recriminations nor condemnations nor the honours of Rome. And he burnt the document in Wittenberg in 1520. Time passed and the 60 days were up. Luther went ahead, as we know, convinced that he was in the right and that Rome was completely in the wrong. A few pages further on in this volume here in front of us, the Pope registered the bull of January 1521, in which he formally condemns Luther as a heretic. And I have to correct a few things he just said. The bull Exurge Domine does condemn 41 propositions of Luther, but they're drawn from different places in his writings, not just the 95 Theses. The condemned propositions do not simply mirror those in the 95 Theses, many of which there was no problem with. And Luther didn't nail the 95 Theses to a church in Wittenberg. There's no evidence that that happened. But I've caught guides working at the Vatican museums who have doctorates but aren't Vatican employees in small errors before, too. I remember the guide we had when we were visiting the Court of the Pinecone misexplaining indulgences. So I had to gently correct her for the Catholic Answers pilgrims we had there. <laughs> <laughs> the idea, Jimmy, is you're going through the Vatican, correcting the errors. I just love that idea. <laughs> well, like I said, she wasn't a Vatican employee. I don't know that that would have made a difference. She did have a doctorate, but not apparently in theology. <laughs> so given the diplomatic relations the Holy See has had with different nations, I imagine they've got a lot of documents that have been exchanged with heads of state, like that letter from England's Henry VIII that we started the episode with. So what are some other pieces of political correspondence that are like that? 
Although she wasn't a monarch, one of the letters they have is from Lucrezia Borgia, who was the daughter of Pope Alexander VI and who was a political mover and shaker from an extremely young age. Lucrezia Borgia, the 13-year-old daughter of Pope Alexander VI. In 1494, she wrote to her father from Pesaro, where she'd just been married to Giovanni Sforza, begging him to leave Rome and escape the plots of his enemies, allies of the French king, Charles VIII. And yes, the Borgias will definitely be on the list of topics for future episodes. And the archives have a holiday greeting card from Marie Antoinette. Or like the brief and moving New Year's greeting card, sent in January 1793 by Marie Antoinette, the deposed Queen of France, to her brother-in-law, Louis of Provence, from her tower prison in Paris, as she awaited news of the decapitation of her husband, Louis XVI. The decapitation of her husband wasn't the only thing she was awaiting. As you'll know, things didn't end so well for her either. A queen that things went better for, although she also lost her throne, was Christina of Sweden. And the reason she lost her throne was because she became Catholic. Standing out among the many precious and sizable documents kept in the Vatican secret archives is that concerning the ratification of the abdication of Queen Christina of Sweden, who converted to Catholicism in 1654. This document is particularly interesting because of the attached seals of the Swedish parliamentary nobles who had to confirm her request to abdicate the throne. There's an entertaining anecdote in this regard. When Christina converted and came to Rome in December 1655, she was housed as a guest for a few days in the Meridian Room, which is located inside the Tower of the Winds, one of the most famous places in the Vatican. So as not to offend Queen Christina, who came from Sweden in the extreme north of Europe, Pope Alexander VII ordered that the phrase ab aquilone pandetur omne malum, every evil comes from the north, be erased from one of the walls of the room. So yeah, the room where she was staying had fancy murals all over the walls, and one of them had a banner that said, all evil comes from the north. So the Pope had that <laughs> part erased. Another really cool letter is from the Chinese Empress Wang of the Southern Ming Dynasty. Equally precious is this letter, in Chinese characters, written in this case on a meter-long piece of silk and sent to Pope Innocent X by the Chinese Empress Wang, who converted to Christianity and took the baptismal name of Helen. In the letter, the Empress professes her Catholic faith, and asks the Pope to pray for the conversion of the Emperor Yongli and for a Ming victory over the Machu invaders. Innocent X died, and the letter, carefully rolled up and protected inside a bamboo tube decorated with imperial Chinese dragon symbols, was delivered to the new Pope, Alexander VII, in 1655, when the Empress herself was already dead. Of course, they also got messages, a lot of messages, from male political leaders, and not all of them were friendly. Then there's this over one meter long document made of two strips of plant paper. It's an imperious message addressed to Pope Innocent IV from Guyuk, the emperor of the Mongols and nephew of Genghis Khan, and sent via a Franciscan friar Giovanni Dapian del Carpine. The document is written in Persian with an introduction in Turkish. The seal is in Mongolian characters and is the second oldest artifact in the Mongolian language. In his message, Guyuk orders the Pope and all Western sovereigns to come and offer us service and homage. Only then will we recognize your submission. I love that. I won't acknowledge your submission to me until you come and <laughs> offer me homage. Some years ago, I saw a different documentary where a Vatican archivist showed this letter and said that although the Pope did not go and offer him homage, we did keep his letter. <laughs> so the political letters are interesting, but what important documents of a religious nature does the secret archives hold? 
A lot of them. Uh, we already mentioned, for example, that they contain the Acts of the Second Vatican Council, which Paul VI opened to scholars immediately after the Council. These go way beyond the published documents that the Council Fathers released. They contain all the background documents, you know, the memos, the communiques, as they were hammering out the documents, the different drafts of the documents, so you can see how they evolved over time. And basically just, you know, everything that was involved as they were being drafted while the Council was in session. And so they're invaluable to scholars for tracing the history of the council's thought and, you know, determining the exact meanings of, okay, they changed this phrase from this to this. What does that tell us about what they meant? So really important stuff. And there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff like that in the archives. Another whole class of documents they have are the records used by the congregation for the causes of saints as a saint is working his way towards canonization. These include the medical records and expert testimony documents that they use when documenting miracles. A few years ago, the Canadian pathologist Jacqueline Duffin, who was herself an atheist, was asked to consult on a medical miracle. And she didn't know what she was giving an opinion on because they didn't tell her. She thought that she was looking at evidence connected with a lawsuit. But afterwards, she learned that, oh, that was a saint canonization miracle, really? And afterwards, she became fascinated with how the church investigates medical miracles. So she went to Rome, got access to the archives, and wrote a whole book about the subject. And we'll have a link to where you can get it. So in episode 60, we talked about the apparition at La Salette and the secrets that the children reported being given by the Virgin Mary. And those were recently rediscovered in a Vatican archive. So was this the secret archives? So far as I've been able to determine, yeah, it was the secret archives. And that would make sense because the secrets were sent to Pope Pius IX. So it would make sense that they go into Pius IX's personal archives. Okay. So, Jimmy, what books did you use when researching this episode? In addition to the documentary we've heard some clips from, I used a book by Polish authors, and it's, forgive me for the pronunciation here, but Grzegorz Gorny and Janusz Rosikon. It's called The Vatican Secret Archives, Unknown Pages from Church History, and it was published in English by Ignatius Press just last year in 2020. I also used the book Looks in Arcana, The Vatican Secret Archives Reveals Itself, which documents an exhibit that toured a few years ago of material from the secret archives. Looks in Arcana, by the way, means or can mean light in mysterious places or light among the secrets. And the purpose of the exhibition was to reveal important things from the secret archives to the public. It's a really great book, and I highly recommend it. Both of these are books are coffee table books, and they're filled with lots of pictures as well as historical background on the document. And they cover a lot of really, really interesting documents that we simply don't have time for in this episode. Just a note, Jimmy, in uh, when we're thinking about perhaps a, an official Latin motto for the show, we should mm -hmm. consider Lux and Arcana, light in mysterious places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now that we've gotten a sense of what the secret archives actually are, let's do a, a lightning round and revisit those 10 things that Lisverse speculated might be in them. And you tell me if each of the following things are likely to be there. So number 10, religious artifacts like the True Cross, the Ark of the Covenant and Noah's Ark. No, the Vatican Secret Archives are an archive for documents, not a museum. And everyone knows the Ark of the Covenant is in a U.S. government warehouse somewhere. Yeah. So, number nine, the bones of St. Peter. No, those are in St. Peter's tomb, which is at the Vatican, though. And they've been really thoroughly scientifically checked out, including carbon dating. Nice. I've seen those uh, mm -hmm. in the tomb. Number eight, historical documents that prove or disprove that Jesus existed. In a sense, because there's no good explanation for Christianity and how it spread so rapidly in the Roman world all the way from Jerusalem to Rome in just a few years, unless it had a strong missionary mandate. And brand new organizations with strong missionary mandates have charismatic founders that give them their marching orders. So in a sense, all of the literature in the Vatican secret archives, as well as all Christian literature in general, points backwards as historical evidence to the historical founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ. 
Uh, number seven, the chronovisor, a device that lets you view events in the past by some kind of electronic time travel. No, but that would be really cool. If you want to see the chronovisor, you need to get a trip on the TARDIS and the doctor can show it to you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And number six, the true third secret of Fatima, not the one that was publicly revealed by St. John Paul II and the future Benedict XVI. No, because the complete text of the third secret of Fatima has been revealed as repeatedly confirmed by John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI, among others. However, the archives do seem to have the two secrets of La Salette. Number five, the devil himself, or at least a manifestation of Satan. They don't have the devil himself, and I have no evidence of any demonically infested artifacts there. The church isn't interested in keeping demonically infested artifacts. When they come across them, the thing to do is exercise the demons and end the infestation. You know, it's like when you discover a Cylon aboard your Starliner is lying to people and causing problems. <laughs> you don't keep it around. You throw it into an airlock and space it. That's right. I thus have no evidence of any demonically infested documents being in the archives. So no Necronomicon. Okay, so number four, a magical book from the Middle Ages known as the Grand Grimoire. The Grand Grimoire is a real thing, but it appears to be a hoax that was created around 1702, even though it claims to be older than that. Because it's a hoax, it's unlikely that a copy would have been deposited in the Vatican secret archives. Also, it's a book, and the more natural place to house it would be the Vatican Library, rather than a documents archive. Number three, a painting of Jesus made in the first century. No, the earliest surviving image of Jesus dates to around A.D. 235, and it's found in the Syrian city of Dura Europas. We'll have a link so you can see it for yourself. Number two, evidence that intelligent aliens exist. No, but that would be wicked awesome. It would be wicked awesome. Number one, Nothing at all, or at least nothing comparing to the sensationalistic items on this list. Yeah, more or less. But what is there is still really cool and of great historical value. Yeah. So earlier, I'm going to call back to this now. You said there was a bit of a twist coming late in today's episode. So what's that twist? The twist is they're not called the Vatican Secret Archives anymore. For years, I thought as an apologist that the Vatican would do itself a favor if they changed the name and got rid of the word secret. You know, that only invites suspicion and conspiracy theories of the not good kind. Well, on October 22nd, 2019, Pope Francis released a document in which he changed the name. He explained... The term secretum, which has become the institution's proper name and which has prevailed in recent centuries, was justified because it indicated that the new archive, created at the behest of my predecessor Paul V around 1610 to 1612, was none other than the Pope's private, separate, reserved archive. This is how all the Popes always intended to define it, and this is how scholars still define it today without any difficulty. This definition, moreover, was widespread with similar meaning in the courts of kings and princes whose archives were defined indeed as secret. As long as there was still an awareness of the close link between the Latin language and the languages that derive from it, there was no need to explain or even justify this title of Archivum Secretum. With the progressive semantic changes that have occurred, however, in modern languages and in the cultures and social sensibilities of different nations, to a greater or lesser extent, the term secretum in relation to the Vatican archive began to be misunderstood, to be colored with ambiguous, even negative nuances. Having lost the true meaning of the term secretum and instinctively associating its value with the concept expressed by the modern word secret in some areas and environments, this term has taken on the prejudicial meaning of secret, as in not to be revealed and reserved for a few. This is entirely the opposite of what the Vatican secret archive has always been and intends to be, which, as my holy predecessor Paul VI said, preserves, quote, echoes and vestiges, unquote, of the passage of the Lord in history. And the church, quote, is not afraid of history, but rather she loves it and would like to love it more and better as God loves it, end quote. Requested in recent years by some esteemed prelates, as well as by my closest collaborators, and having also listened to the opinion of the superiors of the same Vatican secret archive, with this my motu proprio, I decide that, from now on, the present Vatican secret archive, without prejudice to its identity, 
its structure, and its mission should be called the Vatican Apostolic Archive. So the Vatican secret archives are the Vatican secret archives no more. Instead, they're the Vatican Apostolic Archives, and that shift over time should help dispel some of the suspicion and the bad sort of conspiracy theories connected with the institution. So, Jimmy, before we close out our episode today, what's your favorite document housed in the Vatican secret archives? My favorite document is a letter that was sent to Pope Leo XIII in May of 1887. It was sent by a group of Ojibwe Native Americans from Ontario, Canada, and it reflects their culture in several fascinating ways. Instead of being written on paper, it's written on birch bark. When you see a picture of it, you can tell that they chopped down a tree, peeled off its bark, and then cut it and stitched it together in two fragile pieces. In the letter, they refer to where they live, you know, their address, their physical address, as where there is much grass, which meant the place they lived in Ontario. And the date on the letter is in the month of the flowers, which means May. And they refer to the Pope as the great master of prayer, you know, because they didn't have a, a word for Pope in their native language. And they thank him for sending a custodian of prayer, by which they meant a bishop, to help them learn about Jesus. And I love that. It shows the universality of Christ's gospel for every people and every culture, and how we all can be united in faith and brotherhood. And that's a great positive note to end on. It sure is. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Vatican Secret Archives? The Vatican Secret Archives, now the Vatican Apostolic Archives, are a really fascinating place. They hold lots of really cool documents, some of which have tremendous historic value, and scholars of every perspective, Catholic or not, have access to them. They don't hold the kinds of sensationalistic things that people often suspect, but they do contain a lot of mysteries because scholars haven't yet completely gone through them and done an analysis of everything they contain. So, there's still a lot of mystery left in them to be discovered. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener? We'll have links to Gorney and Rossikon's book, The Vatican Secret Archives, also the Looks in Arcana book, uh, the documentary that we heard from on the Vatican Secret Archives, also Jacqueline Duffin's book, Medical Miracles, Doctors, Saints, and Healings in the Modern World, also the book, The Galileo Affair, A Documentary History, which translates you know, documents from, from the trial. Also one, the trial of Galileo, essential documents. We'll have a link to the Vatican Secret Archives website and an article on the Secret Archives that list verse 10 things possibly in the Vatican Secret Archives. We'll also have a link to Ludwig von Pastor's History of the Popes, the Vatican Secret Archive online application form in case you'd like to go there and do a history project or just, you know, confirm that I was telling you the truth about it. Also, an article that I wrote a number of years ago on how Pope Pius XII protected Jewish people during World War II, an ar article on Iron Gall, Inc. that causes the acid problem, an article on Napoleon and the Catholic Church, and also on Napoleon and the Secret Archives, an article on the Grand Grimoire, you know, that hoax we mentioned, also the earliest surviving image of Jesus at Dura Europos, and Pope Francis's document where he changed the name to the Vatican Apostolic Archive. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, we were talking in this episode about the bones of St. Peter, and recently there was an article about some bones in Rome that have been thought to be those of St. James the Less. Now, he was one of the Twelve Apostles, and sometimes he is identified with James, the brother of Jesus. But the evidence for that is really bad. The evidence from the New Testament is that James the Just or James, the brother of Jesus and James the, the Less or James the Short or James the Younger, the Apostle, are two different guys. There, there are multiple Jameses. One of them is James, son of Zebedee, who's the brother of John. One is James the Just, who's the brother, so-called brother of Jesus. And then there's this other one, James the Less, or James the Short, or James the Younger, depending on how you translate it. In Greek, it's hamikros, which could mean any of those things. So they have a femur at a church in Rome that, that was believed to come from James the Less. And recently it was carbon dated, and it turns out 
No, it's not. It's from someone else. The way we know that is not because of DNA sequencing, but because it's from the wrong century. It is a very old bone and could well be from a martyr, but this martyr or whoever it was died 200 years after James the Less lived. And so it's not from the same guy. And that's recently been in in the science and archaeology news. So we'll have a link to that where you can read it. What I like about this, even though I get annoyed because they they have headlines like bone from Jesus's brother turns out to be from someone else. It's like, no, this guy was not Jesus's brother. But what I like is it shows that the church is open to science and they're not reporting. I mean, they're not trying to squelch reports of this. They let the scientists come in and do this dating because they wanted to know, is this bone authentic or not? And they're not challenging the results of the test. So when you have other Datings like they did for St. Peter's bones and St. Paul's bones, and they did show a first century date, that gives more evidence that, yeah, these these tests are not being cooked in some ways. There's not backroom deals. If one comes up, no, it's not him. They admit that. Secondly, now a lot of a lot of martyrs, you know, got decapitated like St. Paul. And wouldn't it be great if after you got decapitated, you could just Grow yourself a whole new body, including a heart. Well, that would be great. Well, it turns out some sea slugs do that. They apparently self-decapitate, and then they regrow entire bodies, including their hearts. There's at least a couple of species that have been found that do this. Some scientists had these sea slugs in an aquarium, and they noticed one day there's a disembodied head that's going around eating algae. (laughs) Okay, how does that work? And over time, it regrew its body, including its heart. And so you might wonder, how does it survive without a heart? The scientists certainly wondered that because they didn't know sea slugs did this. Well, it turns out these types of sea slugs eat, you know, algae and stuff, and they get the chloroplasts from the cells in the plants so that they can photosynthesize temporarily until they regrow their body and their digestive system and their heart and everything like that. If you want to martyr a sea slug, maybe fire or salt, but not decapitation. <laughs> They're not like the Highlanders in the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Wow, that is awesome. So uh, let's see. That's it from us. So what do you think about the secrets in this Vatican secret archives and all the things we learned about it today? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we'll be looking at reports of a really interesting cryptid from Australia, a cryptid being an uh, undiscovered, you know, animal like Bigfoot or Loch Ness. Australia has a Loch Ness monster. Australia has a bunch of reported cryptids. And so we'll be having our friends uh, from Australia, Matt Frad of Pints with Aquinas and Lindsay, Carolyn and Lino from the Catholics of Oz joining us on the podcast to tell us about this cryptid. And so you won't want to miss it. Awesome. Folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at mysteriousworldstore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show, not just today, but all the ones that we've ever talked about. Uh, You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>